everyone. Welcome to another mini-sode for Plot Devices, hopefully your favorite uh, movie and TV podcast out there. Guys, we've put it off long enough. This is the, uh, this, uh, the sacrificial ripping of the Band-Aid, as it were. We're doing the best of 2022. We put it off way too long. I said on Twitter we'd be putting it off. I hope none of you are mad at me for it. I am Brandon King, one of your co-hosts, alongside Noah Guzman, my uh, always faithful co-host. Noah, how are you? Are you excited to finally be looking back to 2022? Brandon, I'm nervous, and hello, everybody. Welcome to another exciting year review roundup of what our top 10 are from 2022. We had one last year for 2021. My number one was Tick, Tick, Boom. I still work some rewatches into my schedule here and there, but Brandon, it is never easy to look back at a full year of movies and ask yourself which 10 of these stood out the most, especially when we have a year like the one we just had. So before we jump into our list, we did have the note uh, ahead of our recording that we wanted to kind of give a statement of what 22 has felt like for this year of movies. So Brandon, go ahead and share with our listeners and me, what was this year like for you in the cinema world? To go off of your point real quick, I feel like every time I make a list, there's a little part of my brain going, the list format is arbitrary. Please stop. You don't need to. And then, uh, you know, the cultural assimilation kicks in. Um, I remember talking about 2021 as if it was three different years in one. And I still very much stand by the 2021 felt incredibly fractured and contrast to kind of the very stagnant kind of feeling that 2020 could feel. And 2022 kind of felt a little bit in between. There were periods where it felt like a genuinely consistent year. And then there were also periods where that fractured sense of here's a movie that comes out and then here's another thing. And then there's nothing. And it kind of felt that way, especially in terms of box office and critical reception. We found movies this year that found a ton of success that no one was really expecting to see. And then specifically in the exact opposite direction, there were a lot more movies that people were expecting to do great that really didn't. I looked to a lot of animated content, but that on the other side of the coin, I looked to horror content that had a genuinely fantastic year, maybe the best of the 21st century so far. It's a weird year after a very weird year. So I have a feeling we're going to be looking at the ramifications of how studios put out content, what what audiences are looking for content for the next couple of years. And I feel like 2022 is the first sign of where the 2020s are going for better and for worse. I know that sounds like a very middle-of-the-road answer, but for a year like this, where a lot of big surprises and a lot of not-so-great surprises happened, it feels very weird to kind of judge it as a whole, but I think it was good, as purely evidenced by the fact that when I was going down and making my list, I once again had like 30 to 40 movies that I feasibly went, this could land somewhere between honorable mentions and top five, you know, it, but as per usual, my top five is usually pretty solidified. But even that, there were some great A masterpieces, I thought, this year that really stood out. And and in contrast to last year, I felt where those movies, you know, I'm, I'm not going to make fun of my last list, but it did feel a bit too, I'm picking the kind of smarter avant-garde picks just a little bit. Uh, and this year is not that. I actually have some pretty big crowd pleases on here. So I'm, I'm a little interested in how that juxtaposes to years past. But yes, 2022 was what it was, and I think what it was was slightly better than last. When we talk about list comparisons, you know, with my number one and your number one, uh, back in our review of 20, the, the top 10 from 2021 with Sam in Corvallo, and she had also been a host on the show, there was definitely that sense of these are the major crowd pleasers, and this is where they ranked on our lists, whether you're talking West Side Story, Dune, um, did, I believe Tick, Tick, Boom. Were those three that we all shared placements for? I might have gone retroactively to put Tick to Boom on there, but it would be on there, yes. Right. And so here, I think our list will be no different, where we will have probably very similar titles. Uh, at least, I'm going to guess, if I could guess, I'd say we're going to have at least four of the same titles. But then 
there's the placements in between or the titles in between that will showcase more of like where our individual interest lies. And that's what's most exciting about these lists. And as we go through uh, 10 to number one, it's just going to be kind of like a little drum roll to see if either of us are able to match the placements for these titles. But I think that also goes to the point that I was trying to articulate later, and forgive me for my messiness of words, which is that the the Venn diagram between big populist box office hits and critically adored, you know, top 10 of the year movies is really getting more broadened in that middle, uh, in that middle part of the Venn diagram. And I think your and I's list are kind of interesting that like, I have a feeling at least two giant blockbusters we're both going to share. And both of those movies are getting awards contention. I think that this was a very uh, tumultuous year, at least in the genres of superhero movies, because I think yep. we have expectations around what Marvel has been able to provide for us, as well as getting used to the routinely um, distributed movies from DC. But then this year kind of threw a curveball for both of those corners and uh, one for the better, one for the worse. And so I found that more and more of these Marvel titles that were being released this year, I had just walked in with... In- insane expectations only to be kind of like leveled out. And so now I have more of a, uh, a grounded expectation for when it comes to a superhero movie from Marvel that isn't like a big team up. And now we're getting like individual stories from the DC universe that I think are, they hold themselves up a whole lot stronger um, independently than they would connected to so many other movies and tie-ins. So I found this to be a very notable year for superhero movies and how we react to them and how we place expectations on them. And the second thing that I wanted to mention was a lot of these uh, movies or a handful of these movies, whether they make my honorable mention list or whether they make my top 10, they are exclusive platform releases. And I hadn't expected that. I hadn't expected two films out of my top 10 to be Hulu uh, premiere releases uh, or other movies that are on my honorable mentions list are Netflix exclusives. And it seems that even though we are still in this age of prioritizing these blockbuster releases in theaters, there are streaming platforms that are pushing out content that is just as um, significant, just as emotionally driven, just as you know, productions are on all tens for these movies, even though you're getting it as a platform release. And maybe people still don't expect that. And they are still surprised to find that some of their favorite movies, they actually have never watched in a theater, but they actually watch at home on their couch or, you know, on a, on a plane, on their phone, you know, in this age, we can experience our most favorite titles for a year outside of the movie theater. And let's see if that happens again in 2023. For sure. Just uh, before we move on, I want to quickly ask you, just because you're the expert on this, I won't ask you if any of them are on your list. But again, horror had an unmitigated year this year. Um, and I won't ask you how it appeals to the last 20 years. So I don't know how fresh your memory is on that. But like, what do you think of audiences accepting horror in all of its facets? Oh, my gosh. It come, the time has come. Noah has to take a stance and be the, the loudspeaker for horror on this I'm podcast. I'm putting you on a pedestal and you'll <laughs> like it. Um, I will gladly be this loudspeaker for horror on this podcast. I am just thankful that the titles that we've gotten, um, I'm going to mention them because they aren't on my top 10, but I'm going to mention like Ty West or T West's X. Um, we have the black phone, we have the menu and countless others that have been released. Um, Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. I want to mention these titles because we are receiving horror from some notable directors, some like first times out and, they just have this semblance of quality to them where I think that they are attracting audiences and, and mass, but 
they're not being, these audiences aren't being let down. Like maybe audiences aren't getting as much jump scares as they want, or they aren't getting as much like gore factor that they came there to see, but the quality is actually what's coming through. And I think that that's, what's really exciting for this year of horror. It's not just uh, another iteration of Ouija or another iteration of insidious, a franchise that has been kind of done to death. Um, we did get a fifth, maybe even six. I think it was the fifth installment of scream this year. It damn near made my list. <laughs> Jenna Ortega, you are, you are amazing, but she'll pop up somewhere else on this episode. But that being said, it, you're absolutely right, Brandon. This year, as a horror fan, it has been so exciting just time and time again to return to theaters, uh, even to see something that didn't appeal to me as heavily as something like Smile or even, um, you know, yes, you're a horror fan. I I doubt you were unamused with how 2022 has um, fed those interests. Well, you well said, and I was just curious to get your thoughts on that. We're going to start off with our actual best of TV. Uh, as we did last year, we're just going to be giving uh, our picks of five, plus maybe an honorable mention or two uh, that we covered this year, or even that we didn't cover this year. Because again, when we tried doing our TV stuff, and again, I apologize that you haven't been able to hear our TV content. I hope it will, I will be able to get out to you very, very soon. Um, but in terms of just a lot of stuff that we covered and just stuff that we watched, we want to get it across to you guys as well as we can. Noah, over to your picks for TV of 2022. So I'm going to start first with Peacemaker. We have our season one of James Gunn's Peacemaker, and that starred John Cena, as well as James Gunn's um, uh, partner. I, I'm, I'm losing her name right now, but I recently learned that that's oh, actually... Um, uh, Jennifer Holland. That they're a married couple, yes. And uh, that was a wonderful series on HBO Max. And I'm kind of going to run through the rest of these because I do want us to get to the movies portion. And if either of these strike up conversation for you, Brandon, you let me know. So number two, Taiko Atidi's Our Flag Means Death. Again, another HBO Max title that we had so much fun covering on this podcast and can only dream for a season two that's to come. Number three or in no particular order, just the third one I'm mentioning, The Legend of Vox Machina, Amazon Prime Video. You know me and Brandon are fangirling over the season two that is, again, yet to come. Uh, so cannot wait. Stay tuned for that. We have coverage on our podcast as well for that show. Stranger Things season four. I wanted to kind of mention shows that we uh, explored season ones of, but with the type of you know, the type of cultural phenomenon that is Stranger Things, season four was just another take on this show to uh, set its own example of what it can achieve and what it can do with all of those episode runtimes kind of feeling like individual movies, like short films. It was just a astound, outstanding season. And uh, Sadie Sink, Star to Watch, um, Are You Running Up That Road? Let's talk about Kate Bush. And then my last show that I wanted to mention is Netflix's Wednesday. That was another phenomenal show that I experienced this year. And that's going to round up the top five for me. We got Peacemaker, Our Flag Means Death, The Legend of Vox Machina, Stranger Things season four and Wednesday. There are so many others that we had the opportunity to discuss and dissect and have fun on with this podcast uh, on or off this podcast. But Brandon, over to you. What were those five that you found you you had to mention? And um, I already know there are some that you can't mention that it's going to hurt your heart to let them lose. <laughs> yeah. And I'm going to break that rule and mention one. Uh, we didn't cover it on this show or any of the spinoffs. Uh, Tales of the Jedi on Disney+. Plus which is not the greatest series, it's very short, but episodes two through four focus on Dooku's past and his leaving of the Jedi Order. And as someone who has for years defended that character for more than Christopher Lee uh, portrayed him as, oh my God, it's so good. It's so good, it's so good, it's so good. Um, but yes, anyway, aside from that, yeah, Peacemaker, unfortunately, didn't make my list, but it's great. Vox Machina, I can't wait for season two. My actual top five and or season one is brilliant. Basically just a giant symphony of, 
amazing grounded Star Wars content. The performances are all tremendous. Uh, again, Nicholas Patel's score, I can't praise enough. Uh, Miss Marvel season one is a total blast and the opposite of Andor, but I love it. Iman Vellani is a star. I know people were kind of mixed on the actual stories and powers. I don't care. I love what they do with it. I think it's totally family-friendly and really refreshing to see an MCU story not take itself and its lore as seriously as it is. Uh, maybe that does contrast with what I said, but I love it in, uh, in terms of rewatch. Uh, number three, Stranger Things season four. Yeah, like, oh, the movie format sucks and they shouldn't have blocked up the last two episodes and, you know, and there's too many characters. Sure, 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 I agree with you. But when the story is this ambitious and the characters are still this likable and you have a villain in Vecna who is so compelling and terrifying, this was the year that I became a Stranger Things fan. I went back and watched all of them before it. And so to be able to be a part of that fandom, that's something I'm never going to be able to forget. So absolutely worth praising. Uh, a show that we definitely didn't cover on here. We probably never will. My next guest, season four. Uh, this is David Letterman's interview show on Netflix that I absolutely adore. I think it's great. I think he's become such a fantastic interviewer outside of the confines of late night. Um, I have not watched his interview with uh, Volodymyr Zelensky yet, but apparently it's tremendous. But he interviews uh, Ryan Reynolds and Billy Eilish. Just the, the format is so welcoming in a way that network television can't be. I think it could be the future of interview content. I really just genuinely love it. And number five, for my second year in a row, my number five pick, only Murders in the Building Season 2. Uh, this is so bam, much... Bam, bam, bam. Yeah. Hey. I mean, look, this this cast is so likable. The characters are so fun. The writing is sharp and, and dark when it needs to be. It takes some darker turns that I was not expecting. Uh, the music is still great. And just, as Noah pointed out when we uh, when we first covered it, it's a comfort show. You can pop it on and understand the mystery and really get in depth with it. Or you can just be with the characters and be with the world. So my five picks in this case are Andor Season 1, Miss Marvel Season 1, Stranger Things Season 4, My Next Guest with David Letterman Season 4, and Only Murders in the Building Season 2. Brandon, are you ready for this top 10 list? This is the moment you have all been waiting for. Let's start off with our honorable mentions. I will go first. Uh, for fourth wall break for all of you guys, I basically took my number 11 through like number 35 to 36 and put them in a graph and said, you can pick between 8 and 12 of these like you did last year. It was very hard. And I also want to make clear that even though there are, I believe, 10 of these, uh, these are not my 11 through 20. They're in a completely non-essential order of just movies that I really wanted to get across to you guys. Um, the Batman is tremendous. And Matt Reeves reinvented the character in a, so, in a completely successful way that I think is going to revolutionize blockbuster for years to come. And I think it's tremendous. Uh, Glass Onion, which I hope we get to cover on the next full-length episode. It's so much fun and the characters are great. Uh, Janelle Monáe should be in the Oscar race, frankly. Uh, Marcel the Shell with Shoes On is a movie that everyone should watch and I stand by it. Uh, Prey, which is one of the best action movies of last year. It's just effing rules. Amber Myth, Thunder is a star. Uh, Women Talking, which I just saw about three days ago. It's excellent. When it comes to a city near you, please don't let it bomb. It's so investing. The cast is great across the board. The Survivor, which is technically a TV movie in terms of Emmy consideration, but it was on HBO Max. It's full length. Uh, it's one of Ben Foster's best performances. Uh, we covered it on the show a while back. Just go search the uh, podcast feed for it. Uh, the Banshees of Inisherin. I rewatched it about a week or so ago. I still don't love it as much as everyone else does. Please don't kill me for it. Uh, but I acknowledge it's uh, I acknowledge it's worth. The performances are all great. Kimmy, Steven Soderbergh's Kimmy is so good and so tight, and it's such a great tech thriller. And Zoe Kravitz is great in it. Uh, yes, I put both Zoe Kravitz performances from last year on this list. Don't, don't judge me. Um, Fire of Love, the volcano documentary that's on Disney Plus, is excellent and all about. Yes, this great love story, but also about like mortality and human legacy and these really poignant themes. Till, which I may have misinterpreted the review on the show. I don't think I was as articulate about it, but let me be clear. 
uh, Dead, Yellow, Dead Wild deserves an Oscar nomination. Uh, the movie's brilliant. I think it's so tender and really loving towards the story of a mother and a son that doesn't get told as much often. And last but not least, uh, Do Revenge, uh, Maya Hawke, Camille Mendes, a kind of elevated high school dark comedy that is just brilliantly written and so funny, and I was not expecting anything else from it. Finally, my biggest pleasant surprise award, which I give out to the movie that surprised me the most in 2022. Previous winners I've given to films like Sonic the Hedgehog and Mamma Mia, Here We Go Again. This year, future me put in a drum roll, yada, yada, yada. Jackass Forever. Uh, this film was a freaking blast, and that's coming from a guy who hated Jackass growing up, and it's one of the best theater experiences I've ever had. I, I couldn't put it anywhere near the list, unfortunately, but again, I, I cannot stress enough just how much fun that movie was as an audience member. So to recap my other mentions, uh, The Batman, Glass Onion, Marcel the Shell with Shoes On, Prey, Women Talking, The Survivor, The Banshees of Inisherin, Kimmy, Fire of Love, Till, Do Revenge, and my best, uh, my biggest pleasant surprise, Jackass Forever. I'm going to give you a couple more seconds of silence because you took the breath out of my my <laughs> lungs, took the air out of my lungs, Brandon. Jackass forever. This is, that's a choice, sir. That is a choice. Hey, but I can only, stands by his decisions. I can only tell you how it made me feel. And it made me feel like I was squinching in my seat for an hour and a half. And I'm right there with you. All right. Honorable mentions, here we go. I'm going to save one to mention at the very end because I think that that would have been my number 11 had this been an 11 movie out of 2022. So I'm kind of just going to blast through these, okay? Unfortunately, there isn't an animated feature that made it to my top 10 list. I know, Brandon. But even more surprising, there was nary a musical that made it to my top 10 list. Well... We'll answer that question once we get to my number six. However, uh, we're just going to get through these. So some of my honorable mentions are the following. We have Turning Red that was released on Disney+. Plus. Um, we know the big, the uh, teenage girl, adolescent, who is discovering herself and her new ability to transform uncontrollably into this big, fluffy panda. Uh, that was a lovely watch. And if you haven't checked it out yet, big recommendation. All of these are pretty much going to be a recommendation. So I need to get through these so that we can get to the real meat of this episode. We've got Sandra Bullock and Channing Tatum in The Lost City. Recently did a rewatch of that one. Action adventure. So much fun. Please watch that with some family members or some friends around you. You all will have a good laugh. I enjoyed the movie The Bad Guys with my younger brother in theaters. And I thought that between that and other animated features that were released this year theatrically, Bad Guys is one of those that appeals both to the younger and older audiences. And really, you just walk out of there uh, with those with those. Um, uh, those themes of like doing good onto others really shining through. We've got another platform release in the Adam project. It was nice to see Ryan Reynolds not be like Deadpool or Ryan Reynolds in another movie. And I feel like in the Adam project, he had a lot to do uh, that really excited for um, that that type of like sci-fi action family movie. Uh, next is going to be a horror title. It is Ty West's X. You know, it did not make my top 10. Unfortunately, there are some other horror titles that kind of bumped it out, but that is for sure a recommended watch on my list. Top Gun Maverick, you did not make my top 10. However, uh, with the type of uh, emotion that came through that movie and just, I, I don't know, like fucking Brandon once called, he, Brandon called one movie metal this year, and I think it was The Northman. But yes. when I think about Top Gun Maverick and the fact that they used actual jets or actual what, whatever you want to call them for every one of those scenes, uh, just it, it's, Tom, it's Tom Cruise, baby. Uh, we've got The Black Phone on there, another horror title that is um, a nice and sweet runtime that uh, stars 
Ethan Hawke as this like very creepy um, kidnapper. And it kind of tells, if you remember like stories like Coraline, where you have um, those, those who have passed on, like the spirits of the dead communicating to like the final survivor to try and help them on their journey. That's exactly the story of the black phone. And I think that how they piece together um, that escape story is such a beautiful, uh, just succeeding plot line to follow. Next is going to be a smaller title. Maybe you missed it. It's Apple TV's Cha Cha Real Smooth. We did cover it on the podcast. And uh, while Here we my, go. while myself and Brandon find ourselves on either sides of the fence for this film, I will say that our previous uh, guest host, Carlos Aguilar, was on my side. Okay, He was on the he side was. of those who have enjoyed Cha Cha Real Smooth. So go ahead and check out that movie. Um, Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. We recently reviewed it, and it got such uh, raving responses from myself and Brandon, um, as well as like the film community at large. Uh, it is a wonderful stop-motion animated picture. Uh, I, I think that had I spent just a little bit more time letting it bake in my mind, it probably would have made my top 10, but with others that have just stayed on my mind a whole lot longer, um, unfortunately, it didn't make that top 10. Next is going to be The Menu. I believe that is streaming now on HBO Max if you have that service with... Uh, Rafe Fines and Anya Taylor Joy in that like kind of quirky, uh, hell's kitchen, like master chef, uh, thriller horror where you don't really know whether the menu is something being served to you or whether it is something that you will be served as part of. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, next is going to be Marry Me. I wish I could mention more musicals oh. for this top 10 list, but Marry Me is the JLo Owen Wilson rom-com where Maluma is also in there and um, surprisingly, this was the type of movie that I compared its musical production, at least to that of A Star is Born, because the type of music that JLo recorded um, and that was put together for this movie to feel whole, like this really was a superstar who was in the film as a character, was really impressive. I found myself going back to that album and playing them just because I thought that they really did sound like some modern day pop hits. So kudos to them. I, I like their storyline and I found myself by the end of it kind of, or at the start, I found myself di- doubting their chemistry. But then once you get to the end, I actually really admired how Wilson and Lopez were able to uh, craft their, uh, their love on screen. And my last honorable mention is my number 11. If we were doing a top 11 movies of 2022, another movie that Brandon and I had just covered in our kind of uh, catch up episode for 2022. It's after Yang. It stars Colin Farrell. Um, it is a wonderful movie about grief and loss, even when it doesn't have to pertain to a, you know, a, a real human loss. It, it is just incredible. Like I still am having conversations to this day with those around me about how those, how those conversations can happen and whether, you know, that, that future situation is going to be like around the corner for us or whether it's already here. And like some people do have these rising emotions or reactions to things around them that aren't sparked by something real or aren't sparked by something with a heartbeat. Maybe that sounds completely vague. If you want to have more insight into what that conversation involves, go check out mine and Brandon's uh, catch up episode of 2022. And you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. So I can just run through them real quick, just for the titles. It's going to go turning red, the lost city, bad guys, the Adam project, top gun, Maverick X, the black phone, cha-cha real smooth, Pinocchio, Guillermo del Toro's that is the menu after Yang and marry me. Hi, everyone. Feature Brandon from the Editing Bay here. We had some audio glitches on a few of our picks, so I'm just putting those here for clarity. Noah also had Black Panther Wakanda Forever on his honorable mentions. I had The Woman King and Montana Story on mine. Just wanted to add those again and hope you guys seek those out if you haven't. On to the top 10. Enjoy the list. 
It's time for the top 10. And this will be interesting because at least for myself or Noah, there's at least one on this list that uh, that I could uh, that I could talk about on my list later. But I'm actually going to start with Noah's list. Noah, you're number 10 of 2022. Let's get into it. Number 10. It is a Hulu release. It is a horror title slash action directed by Dan Trottenberg. I am talking to you about Prey, baby. Yeah. This is an absolutely wonderful short feature that we got um, exactly around the time that we forgotten whether the Prey franchise or the Predator franchise is actually going to make it any longer. Well, psych, it is back and it's coming with a vengeance. This time we take the whole story of the alien predator gone hunting um, back to uh, the 18th century and we focus in on a um, indigenous woman named Naru who is faced with this challenge of rising above the expectations that is placed on her. And to do that, she goes on this great hunt only to realize that she's hunting one of the greatest predators of all. Can I even say time? Because how long have these predators been around? Who knows? But this was an exciting feature that I think came out of left field for me. Like I really thought another predator movie was going to bomb and then having watched this and then learning about the cultural significance behind it. How can you not be a fan? If you haven't tuned into Prey yet, it, it should still be streaming on Hulu. And uh, the visuals, the action, and the um, the overall, just the feel of this movie. I think it even has some impressive like cinematic um, cinematography elements to it. So Prey, Dan Trottenberg is my number 10. I mean, it was Hulu's biggest premiere ever, at least according to them. So, And it's on both of our lists in some capacity. Um, as for my number 10... It's funny that you mention your lack of animated films on your list, because there's at least two on mine. I mean, come on, this is me we're talking about. Uh, and while your film is a film that begins with the letter P, so is mine. Recency bias is a fickle thing. My number 10 is Puss in Boots, The Last Wish. Oh my gosh, Brandon. Okay, in, fa- in all fairness, I'm going to let you continue. I'm, I'm going to pull that uh, Kanye West real quick. Um, I'm going to let you finish, Brandon, but Puss in Boots swear it was the it was one of the titles that i said brandon does it count for 2022 and it, and he we both agreed that it does and i just still think that there were others that beat it out but brandon i am more than listening to all the reasons why puss in boots last wish made it to your list this is a beautiful feature you, you continue I, I apologize but i wanted to throw that in there no please i wanted to hear your thoughts because again the fact that this movie has done what it's done let alone box office wise let alone critics wise is if there's a reason why it was my runner-up for biggest surprise of the year behind Jackass, because I don't know about you, I like the first Puss in Boots. Puss in Boots Last Wish is tremendous. I, from the first few minutes, I had a big old permagrin on my face. And I don't think I've had a grin on my face that big since the Phineas and Ferb movie on Disney+. Plus. This movie just knows how to have fun. And it's exciting and it's flashy. The action sequences, my God, Joel Crawford, what did you do with this? Like, he and his team have taken the animation for DreamWorks. You mentioned the bad guys, and I think that was kind of the appetizer for this. The bad guys is very good. But at the end of the day, it is very much just of its own story and narrative quirks. Whereas this goes above and beyond. It takes everything about the character and throws it out the window. It gives us one of the best DreamWorks villains, maybe best animated villains of the uh, of the of the 21st century so far in Death, played by Avogna Mora, who's fantastic. But Antonio Banderas, uh, Salma Hayek, uh, Harvey Guillen, who I think that's how you pronounce it, the guy from What We Do in the Shadows, uh, who plays Perito, who's fantastic. Uh, Florence Pugh, I want the Three Bears stuff so bad. Um, but again, like the story is tremendous and sobering in really interesting ways that I don't think a DreamWorks movie has been 
maybe since Kung Fu Panda 2, I don't know. Um, but like, it's unlike any DreamWorks movie that they've done in recent years. It's giving me hope that the bad guys only kind of, it, it, the, again, the bad guys are kind of like the dollar in front of me. This is like the whole flood of money. And I cannot be more excited for DreamWorks future after this. Again, recency bias is a fickle thing. I saw this two weeks ago. I maybe we'll look back at this in years future and go, you way overhyped this along with every other critic in the universe. But for right now, damn, I had fun. Number nine, we got to keep this list going. It is another Hulu release, and it is for my queer folk out there. If you are familiar with the Andrew on title, it is Fire Island, baby. We've got comedic genius Joel Kim Booster attached as well. Uh, ever since this film, I went on to watch his Netflix spe- special, Psychosexual, um, seeing some... Uh, queer-centered comedy specials on Netflix as well. I invite you all just to go watch more and more stand-up on Netflix. It puts me in a great mood, and I think it would do the same for you if you're just looking for that quick comedic juice. Um, But Fire Island was a movie that I watched and really fell in love with because of its characters centralized and told from a perspective of, like, the two characters are from Chinese background and they have to deal with stigmas in the gay community as well as in just the uh, Chinese community about what it is to uh, live this life that they have um, and what it means for either of them to pursue love. And it wasn't until after the movie was over that Brandon pointed out it was actually a retelling or a uh, iteration on Pride and Prejudice. And after I learned that, I was like, oh, <laughs> that's why, like, it, it maybe it kind of felt familiar. But then we went on, I think, to watch Pride and Prejudice, and we reviewed that on our directorial debuts. Back to Fire Island, though, I just loved how freaking exciting it was. I loved the uh, the different storylines we followed. I loved the different areas of love that were explored, as well as the kind of um, culture behind, like, what it is to, like, be in the gay community. Like, there was even that whole scene where they were going through the drugs that they were all going to take for the night. And I remember that being significant in our conversation because of um, them providing even just the the surface level of um, distinction between what these drugs will do. It's not something that I think is included in other media. They kind of just write it off as being something that is terrible that will never affect you in a good way. Uh, Whereas here in this movie, they give you just, just like I said, just a snippet of a detail. I'm not saying it's educational at all, but I'm happy that they can include it in a realistic sense because in real life, you may or may not run into those conversations. Fire Island, completely gay, completely hot, completely like romantic up front. And uh, it's such, it's such a beautiful watch. I haven't given it too many rewatches since I've last seen it, but thankfully it is on Hulu. So I'll be watching it for sure. Brandon, please share. What is your number nine? That's sorry. That's really interesting that both of your picks so far have been Hulu picks, right? I didn't, I didn't plan this. Okay. Hulu's not paying me yet. <laughs> uh, if you do share that, some of that, uh, money <laughs> Um, it's funny because my pick is, uh, basically did not go right to streaming, but it felt like it did. It felt like it came out in theaters. It did okay. And then once it came to streaming, it really took off and found the appeal that a lot of critics were talking about, specifically both of us. Like we both really liked this movie. And on the times that I've rewatched it and I've given it at least one, if not two, I can't remember rewatches uh, since then. It's only grown on me and I've only really learned to embrace Jordan Peele's note. Yes, we got a horror feature on Brandon's list. You did it. You freaking did it. Uh, nope is fantastic. And look, I'll be the first to acknowledge it's a little too overambitious. Like some of the narrative threads kind of unfurl at points. I'll be the first one to admit that some of the teases go a bit too far. Like it's a little bit too much. Oh, look at what we're going to do with this. But what they're going to do with this is freaking tremendous. Daniel Kaluuya, who I want him to work with Jordan Peele forever on this, like 
He just gets the best out of the guy. And I know people will go to, oh, you know, he's so stoic. No, no, no. He's channeling like early 40s or, you know, mid 50s, like tough men kind of stereotypes, but completely unraveling them in this really poignant topical way that's dealing with grief and living up to family expectations. Contrasted against Kiki Palmer, who is maybe given the performance of her career so far, and I think is only going to get better from here. She's so fun and so exciting. But then, like, Brendan Parea and uh, Michael Wincott and, like, the whole supporting cast are just a ton of fun. But Jordan Peele is the star of this movie. He knows exactly how to play you as an audience. And even for someone like me, who is not a horror guy, and there are two or three sequences in the movie that still chill my bones, but they're contrasted against pure spectacle. And more interestingly, spectacle that challenges the audience. It's a movie that knows how audiences will view, you know, a big, bold, you know, at first terrifying, but then really mysterious UFO story, and then turns it all on its head. It turns it against you to determine, you know, how you view spectacle and why you're so invested in this, and then just takes you on a freaking roller coaster ride between the sets, between uh, Johnny Burns' sound design, between Michael Abel's score. Oh my God, Michael Abel's score. I, I, I was so happy when the, when the uh, Best Original Score shortlist came out recently and he was on there. I really, truly hope he gets like an outside shot at score nomination. Um, this movie's great. It's brilliant. It's smart. Yes, it's overpacked, but that's the point. And if you can latch on to the whole, you know, whirlpool of a roller coaster of it all, it's something really special. And I think in years' time, we're going to be maybe not looking at it as Peel's best movie because Get Out still has done what it does, but this is special. My number eight on our top 10 list is going to be Zach Kreger's Barbarian. Okay, we have stars okay. Georgina Campbell. Yes, Brandon, we have stars Georgina Campbell, Bill Skarsgård, and who used to be, I think, very heartthrob, um, casted Justin Long, playing an absolute scumbag of a character in Barbarian. Um, Brandon, remind me, you checked this one out too, yes? No, I was too scared to. <gasps> oh, wow. Brandon, I think you'd enjoy this movie, but knowing your knowing your taste or knowing your approach to horror, maybe not. So, I, Barbarian. I've, I've heard it get screwed up. Oh, it is. It's one of those movies, right? I put it in the same vein of like Malignant, where you think you kind of know what to expect, and then it completely turns on itself, and you just go, damn, that was a... I, you know, maybe I'm still figuring out if I if it was good or not, but I know damn well I liked it, and I know it was a wild watch. So, George, you got Georgina Campbell. Um, I, I've liked her ever since I saw her in the Black Mirror episode, Hang the DJ, and here it's no different. George Campbell is a wonderful performer and showcasing her talent here in the horror space as she uh, shows up to this Airbnb where a man is already staying, and the two of them kind of have a very nice mute cue at the start, only to realize that what lies beneath the surface and more importantly what lies beneath the foundation of this house is nothing like what you can expect from this movie i don't want to give into too many spoilers but if you've watched barbarian i'm sure you know about what's to come about what what is featured down below and the type of haunts that come along with it this movie is gory this movie is hilarious and it's it's one that i couldn't get off my mind i was was having conversations with my friends about it and just smiling laughing uh it's not a movie that left me shaken, but it is a movie that if I have to venture into any basement, I will be thinking about because it, it has that kind of effect on you, that long lasting, um, long lasting impact on your brain. So number eight, Barbarian. So for me, my number eight actually goes towards one of your honorable mentions, as you mentioned. Uh, but I'm also doing something that I did last year and that I've done for the last couple of years. If you guys remember last year, I have a personal rule where I can tie a movie but only if that only if one of the movies came out prominently in that year that we're talking about and the other came out 
technically that year. So like if it had that Oscar qualifying run in November, December, but no one could really see it until the following year. This is that tie. And I think it's apropos for the two films that I'm going to be tying together. Number eight is a tie between After Yang and Drive My Car. I'm just excited that After Yang is on there. Oh my gosh, keep going. I'll start with After Yang. Like we talked about that just recently. We had a whole 20 minute, very excessive discussion that was very difficult to edit down. Uh, but I didn't want to take out any of it because I think that film is so poignant and Koganada is so, he's one of the most delicate filmmakers I've ever seen. He understands grief and family connection and humanity in a way that is so tender that I haven't seen in many other modern directors right now. And then just the cast as a whole, like Colin Farrell is just having one hell of a, maybe the best year for a single actor this year. But again, Jodie Turner-Smith, who we did not give enough flowers to in the review. She's absolutely excellent. Justin H. Min, who I'm so glad he's getting work outside of Umbrella Academy. Malaya Emma Chandra Wijaya, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, as uh, the daughter is fantastic. Haley Richardson is having one heck of a year. Uh, and Mitski does a really great song to tie the movie together. Keep that in the back of your head for future. Um, but the movie itself is just so poignant and so inexplicably, again, tender about addressing grief and what happens to people in that vein. Um, but also about like, how tech can divide us, but also isolate us. The line, uh, the increase, the increasingly blurry line, I should say, between humans and technology, what makes something human, what makes someone human, and how they choose to address it. It's a complete, just, uh, it's a complete meditative kind of movie, but one that really sinks into you, as does Drive My Car, which really grew on me. I saw it initially, like late January, early February, and I thought, this is good. It's way too long and it's so slow and, and all this stuff. And then I rewatched on HBO Max and talk about a rewatch. Much like after Yang, it just sinks its talons into you and just doesn't let go. Um, Hidetoshi Nishijima is one of the best performances of the year. He's not going to get nominated because Oscar rules are nonsense, uh, but he's brilliant in this. The supporting cast are all great. Um, Aiko Ishibashi, forgive me if I'm pronouncing your name. Uh, her score is phenomenal. It's one of my favorite of the year. I can just put that on. And it's a great, just ambient jazz kind of score to it all. But again, the movie is all about grief, but also how that affects careers, how that can affect your artistic drive, and can you even keep going if you even want to? It's a, Both of these movies are incredibly poignant explorations on similar subjects. Those really helped me get across that idea of what happens when you lose something or someone precious to you, and how do you carry on in those things? And was that world that you even had with that person good enough? So again, After Yang is, I believe, on Showtime right now, as well as VOD, uh, Drive My Car, streaming on HBO Max. I realize I haven't been saying where these movies are playing, but I'll leave that in the description as well. But yeah, after Yang Drive My Car, that's my tie for this year. Here I go, charging ahead to our number seven. Although I kind of want to call you out for making a tie. How dare you? I should have put after Yang in my number. You called me out last year, but you didn't say <laughs> I couldn't do it this year. So I did it again. Damn, damn. I have to keep that, I have to keep that in mind. Okay. So here we go. We're charging forward. We're going to go ahead and move on to our number seven. And honestly, I'm not going to lie. I think half of my list are part of Brandon's honorable mentions. So for this one, it is no different. Uh, we are looking at the, uh, <laughs> the partnered project between Dean Flesher Camp and Jenny Slate. We are talking the theatrical version. Okay. I'm not talking those little YouTube vids anymore. We are talking Marcel the Shell with shoes on. You hear me clapping? I'm clapping for this. I hear you clapping, Brandon. Uh, I don't hear Marcel clapping because I think that that's just like the pitter-patter of his little tiny shoes. So, Marcel, the little tiny shell with shoes on. This movie is going to break your heart. This movie is going to remind you of those soft, um, like, juvenile feelings that you had as a kid when it's what it's like to, uh, you know, go on your own journey, you know, look around at your family, want to help out, but want to be an independent, uh, get annoyed when you have to, like, find yourself at a divide between them. Um, 
and it tells those stories all while creating a world around a character who is, I think, one inch tall, who uses, you know, toothpicks and pennies and cotton balls, string, honey wax, everything that we pay no mind to matters so much to a character like Marcel. And minimizing our perspective to one like theirs is just so beautiful of a picture to experience in a, in a film like this. So Marcel the shell with shoes on, um, there is a central focus on the relationship between Marcel and Marcel's grandmother, Connie. And it, it helps to balance that with this documentary take that the film has with the director slash writer, Dean Flesher camp coming in as the voice of Dean, who's a videographer throughout the entire, you know, um, film. It's so heartwarming and it's touching. I, I wish I could, just, you know, <laughs> I wish I could insert the memory into all of your heads. That way you all can experience the type of joy that it brings about. Marcel, the show with shoes on is available video on demand. If you get a chance, make sure you watch that film. It is not one you want to miss out on. My number seven, however, is a, mo- is a movie featuring a character who I would want nowhere near Marcel. Because Marcel is lovely and kind and innocent. And the lead character for this movie is complicated, but not morally good. Uh, and that being my number seven in Tar. Brandon, tell me all about, like, was it Kate Planchett? Was it the movie as a whole? This is a surprising mention for you, at least from my ears. I, I should say this. I haven't rewatched it, so I haven't been able to re-examine the ending, which I still don't totally love, although everyone else seems to be loving it in my place. That being said, the other 95% of the movie is brilliant. It's really damn good. And again, like you mentioned Kate Blanchett, this, it's Todd Field's movie. It's his directing. It's his screenplay. Like he understands the tone and attitude and pacing that this movie needs to have. But it's Kate Blanchett's performance. She owns every second of this. And what's great about it is you never lose track of this being a centralized story. This never feels like anything else than Lydia Tarr's story. And Blanchett brings you face to face with her, her demons, her pleasures, her um, her successes, her failures, the confusion that gets a lot of the story, and the hauntingness of the story. That I didn't mention this in the initial review, but there's a sense of like haunting dread creeping throughout the movie that somehow that like there's a part of her that knows the things she's doing and the way she's getting to the top aren't good, and yet she just ignores them. And it's poignant to see that like she's so human that we can recognize those flaws in ourselves. Like many of us could take that same path if we wanted to. But again, like as a Purely as a performance, she puts her entire physicality into it. It's totally lived in. I, I still would put Michelle Yeoh as my top of ballot for uh, for best actress, but again, Blanchett is just the closest to it. But again, even beyond Blanchett, uh, Naomi Marlon is fantastic. Nina Haas is the actual like beating heart of the movie. She's the total moral center of the movie. Um, Mark Strong has kind of a fun role where he just gets to be like a total dick bag for a couple minutes, and it's fun. Um, and it visually has this great sense of style to it. This is probably the pick on this list that not everyone is going to want to engage with because the character is so unlikable, because as I described, it's a movie that uses every word in the English dictionary. <laughs> like it needs you to get onto that, that kind of intelligentsia type level where you understand where the world of symphony and high art come from, but like, why do they even matter? And should we even value those things? But in those questions, I found a lot of real poignancy and real humanity in them even if it's the darkest tendencies of those things. It's not a movie for everyone. It's not even a movie that I love every aspect of, but it's a movie that's stuck with me. Brandon, let's go ahead and move on to our number six. Mine 
It's no surprise here. You knew it was going to make the list. It is the international. It is the Telugu film. It is the Netflix phenomenon. Triple R, RRR, uh, rise, revenge, repeat, re- die, live, die, repeat, edge of tomorrow, rest, revenge. Rise. It is triple R. It is the it broke uh, your brain. That is right. Um, this is the uh, revenge tale that takes place between uh, two, like they kind of find each other and form a brotherhood. And um, this is the one that I like wanted to. I had questions about whether I could classify it as a musical right? because of that major musical number that is included that you and I wanted to see appear uh, in an Oscars, like um, in an Oscar mention, but I wasn't sure whether I could put it there or not. That being said, this movie is a hell of a ride. You know, I think that the responses around triple R are what caught my attention before any of the plot details did. And then we slowly had conversations about it on the podcast before we were like, what the hell let's go ahead and cover it. And then we cover it. And I just realized that this is the type of movie that you sit down and you're like winded by because of the adventure and the stakes and everything that's behind it. It may not appeal to your immediate interest, but this is just what excitement lies beyond American cinema, like coming from the Tulu cinema world is just amazing to be introduced to that level of filmmaking and uh, artistry that we rarely get to see here on our um, American big screens. So I am so impressed by this film. I knew it had to make my list. Triple R, you can catch that film on Netflix. And before I forget to mention it, this is from director S.S. Rajamuli. I cannot wait to see your name mentioned at the Oscars. And uh, that's going to be my number six, there's not a non-chance that he won't be. Like, the Oscars have done this stuff. He, he could. My number six is the complete opposite, where RRR is big, bombastic, huge, exciting. This is tumultuous and tedious and can be really hard to watch, but I think is just tremendous, tremendous filmmaking. And that is happening. Uh, this is a French film by Audrey Dewan that got a U.S. release earlier this year. I was lucky enough to be able to see it. And... It also came out right at around the time that Roe v. Wade got struck down, which is important because this is a movie about abortion rights in the 60s in France. Uh, this movie is poignant and dark and twisted, but also really full of life. Anna Maria Bartolome, who leads the movie, does so much work here. The fact that she, the fact that she isn't being considered for the best actress race, I firmly believe it's because this movie must have had some kind of release thing where, oh, it's technically 2021 and it came out here, yada, yada. She is brilliant. And she is a name who I'm going to be remembering for a long time. The movie really doesn't pull any punches. Um, Audrey Dewan really knows how to show the, the progressive stress of finding out that you are pregnant for one thing, but then also finding out that basically the world around you has this really prejudiced, really puritanical belief about what that means for you and what your life from that day forward will mean. You are indebted now to this child and you owe yourself to everything for that but never really addressing the safety of the mother, the concerns of the people around her, the medical procedures that are endorsed. The overall stress of a situation like this, it really drove to mind the point of desperation that this movie tries to get across. Again, Anna Maria Bartolome just embodies that sense so beautifully. It's incredibly shot. The whole thing uh, has an aspect ratio that makes you, much like uh, Passing, that was also my uh, best of the year list in 2021, makes you feel condensed and trapped in the same space. But every once in a while, it'll fill that space with life and dancing and, you know, energy and happiness to make to remind you of just how much vibrancy this woman has and what that might be lost on her throughout just the process of trying to live. It's a dark movie. It's really, again, not easy to watch. And I 
assure you that some of you right now are listening to me talking about this and going, I would rather never watch this. I would love for you to give it a shot. I'm so glad I watched this and I hope some of you won't give it a chance. We are now at the halfway mark and we are moving on to our top five. Five golden films. You knew that I had to have a mention of a horror title in this top five, but I think I actually have two. Hmm? Question. Well, you have Barbarian. We'll, we'll see. Okay, but I'm talking top five, Brandon. All right, my number five feature, uh, I won't be coy, Jordan Peele's Nope. You had this in your honorable... No, you didn't, Brandon. This made uh, the second number half nine. of your... Yeah, this was your second half of your top 10. I was actually, oh, again, I'm just so happy that there's a horror title on your top 10. Um, but from Jordan Peele's Nope, Brandon had some excellent points, so I won't go ahead and like just deliver them to you once more. I will go ahead and offer my own applauses to the cast with Stephen Yun, Kiki Palmer, Daniel Kaluuya. But, oh my God, um, I feel so bad. I forgot Stephen Yun. Thank you. Yeah, you did. So I knew that I was going to catch it. Oh yeah, baby. I'm sorry, Stephen. A big thing that I wanted to talk about for this film, uh, in particular, like why it, it's, it makes its mark here on my number five. Oh, Brandon Perea as well. Can't wait. To, I hope he appears in more stuff. Um, but it's just all the things that have to do with instinct in this film. I think as I was collecting just my brief notes for what I wanted to say for Jordan Peele's Nope was that when it comes to animal instinct, this film, uh, does spend a lot of time demonstrating that between its horse training, between its, um, exploration into the history of Gordy and how terrifying that experience was for our character, uh, Ricky Jupe, who Yun plays. And it, it's important for me to mention that I found the most horrifying piece of this film happens at the very middle. And that is during that flashback to the Gordy scene. Now, I don't know if that's done on purpose and I don't know if anybody else has that same type of takeaway, but for myself, that is the most horrifying place to find yourself in this film. And then as you move on into the third act, that's when it kind of, it jumps off the cliff and goes into sci-fi bill, which I appreciate. There's a reason why this is a number five. Um, but then we talk about, uh, you know, f- familial instinct. When we have a brother-sister relationship like the Haywoods between Palmer and Kaluuya, I have an older sister myself. And seeing that demonstrated on screen um, and, and finding similarities between how we will talk to each other and what kind of love exists between a relationship like that is something I will always gravitate toward. Thankful, thankfully, because of my um, my family connections that I have, um, and I'm so thankful for. And then I wanted to talk just for a brief moment because I'm going on my little instinct spiel here. Is the commercial instinct we have uh, Jupe going on to like make a buck off of this phenomenon that is that they are experiencing in their little town where he is feeding like he is providing live feed to an extraterrestrial being, and that. How do you say, how do you say that you want to make that into a film picture and immediately create something that Jordan Peele has created? Like, I can't imagine a mind tackling the story. It's Peele's story. So who else to tackle it but him? Uh, another example of his just extraordinary hold on the, on this horror corner of filmmaking. Cannot wait for his next picture. I know one is coming. Another Peele feature that I'm happy to provide applause and recognition for. Go watch it if you haven't. Go rewatch it if you have. But that's going to be my number five, Jordan Peele's Nope. And on to my number five, which weirdly ties into yours a little bit. It's also a movie about maybe not spectacle, but about filmmaking and about storytelling and how those things can provide us comfort and can also be the, uh, can also maybe be the lead to more problems in our life. That being Steven Spielberg's The Fablemans. Uh, yes, I know this movie has been praised to high heaven and back. Yes, I know Spielberg just won the Golden Globes. He, he has a very strong chance of winning the Oscar. We don't need to praise Steven Spielberg more. But yeah, I get it. But at the end of the day, the Fieldmans 
struck that chord with me, as all of these movies did. I reviewed it back on the show a couple episodes ago. Go listen to that if you want like, my whole spiel behind it. But what Spielberg does with this movie is really boil down the point of filmmaking to its most emotional, to its most visceral, and to its most childlike, intimate is the word, I might think. Like the idea that, you know, picking up a camera can offer you the chance to tell a story and put an image to a screen and put those images into a story and really bring that thing to life. But it can also be an outlet. It can be an outlet for escaping family troubles or bullies or anti-Semitism or prejudice or whatever you're facing in your life. And the more that I've gone back to revisit the Fablemans in context of what it's going for, the more I've just really been impressed by what Spielberg does with this and what he could have done with this. It could have been so cheesy and so simplistic and just so to the point of how great his childhood was and how much of a genius he is. And there are those tendencies in there if you're looking for something that, you know, doesn't hold back, which it doesn't. But again, for as tender as it is, for as loving as it is, this is a movie about a family and a kid in that family looking to filmmaking as an outlet. Gabriel LaBelle is a freaking star and I hope he gets more things. Michelle Williams, Paul Dano, Judd Hirsch, freaking Judd Hirsch is great in this movie. Um, and again, the movie just struck a chord with me that on a purely personal level, I didn't think I'd see in a movie this year and just really, really worked for me. And I know there's people, you know, guffawing at it and saying, you know, it's Spielberg being self-indulgent and I totally get that where it's coming from. I would ask those people to take a second look because I think this is genuinely maybe one of my favorite Spielberg movies at this point. The Fablemans. It's, it, it made my watch list after you brought it up for its initial review. It? No, Brandon. However... Don't lose faith in me. I, I will work my way towards it. I promise you. I think um, you'll like it. But I just had to, you know, I wanted to just add the fact that like you, you gave some, you gave a review for it that you kind of balanced the same points of like, he could have gone completely like non-humble and just like tooted his own horn with what he's been able to achieve in filmmaking. But that's not what this film was. Instead, it was that innocent approach to like what that pursuing that dream meant for him. Uh, at least that's what, you know, I'm getting from your review. Uh, so I wrote, I wrote down again, watch the Fablemans because you've now mentioned it enough where I'm like, how can I not see this? And Brandon is over here, like talking it up. We're moving on to number four, another honorable mention from Brandon. It's so impressive that some of these did not make your list, but whatever. We're different people. It's fine. Um, it is. Matt Reeves, the Batman. Okay, I was wondering where yes. this was. Yes, you you knew it was on here already. I'm sure. I'm. I mean, I'd be curious if you my top three already, but one of them is I'm no doubt bound to surprise you. Okay, so number four is Matt Reeves, the Batman. We got Pattinson, we've got Kravitz, we've got Colin Farrell, who I'm right there with Brandon. If we have to uh, recognize an actor for how it, having such a remarkable year with their uh with their characters and with their um just performances it's gonna be for the male performer it's gonna be colin farrell um if we're looking at uh, a female performer i mean not gonna lie with all the coverage and all the excitement that is buzzing around jennifer coolidge i kind of just want to celebrate her too um but no in this conversation i will stick it straight to the batman so we have a villain like the riddler who is very much you know is is a sadist the right word is masochist the right word i can't remember which one of those a mix of a sadist and an anarchist. I'll take it, right? Like he, this is a movie and the references at the time that is very much like Seven, you know, with Brad Pitt and Morgan Freeman, it was absolutely that, this uh, detective approach to the uh, caped crusader that is Batman, you know, instead of this importance placed upon his gadgetry or the brute force of how he is in combat, this film really takes a look at how Bruce Wayne operates as a detective. And even, even though, <laughs> even though he has these traumas that follow him, I laugh because of like how moody it can sometimes 
all be. But Pattinson is the one to pull it off with Jeffrey Wright's chief commissioner, Gordon, uh, and, and having their relationship exist as it is. And we had a wonderful mention of Sky Merida when he was on here from the show No Capes Required. He joined in on our round table discussion for the Batman. And he had mentioned that this is this is a cat and bat story because we have Catwoman now with Zoe Kravitz and we are able to follow a storyline with her that is separate to what Batman is doing throughout this film. And that is in itself like a reason to watch this movie. It's an, it's an appeal, at least for me. So maybe it's an appeal for you. Thinking back about the Batman, yes, it's a long movie. I'm going to work in the practice of not complaining about, about a runtime as often in 2023. Um, but yeah, the Batman is up there. I, I think I'm just repeating the same points, but you got to know that this movie meant a lot to watch in theaters. And I just was blown away by everything that it was able to provide. So Matt Reeves, thank you so much. The Paul Bearer, we'll have a discussion about that later. But as far as the Batman goes, you make my number four. Yeah, go check out our directorial debut episode on the Paul Bearer. It's fascinating. It's funny how our lists how it haven't matched up in choices so far. But in terms of thematically, I can connect it because you already mentioned this pick for one thing. But for another thing, going to the idea of the Batman being this big, bold theatrical experience, I wish I had gotten to experience this movie theatrically. RRR, baby. Yes, SS Roger Mooley makes both of our lists. Okay, I was waiting for that feature that like, okay, it was nope, it's triple R this year. Yep, We're bound to have another, Brandon, but please tell me what, what kind of takeaways that you have so that this is actually much higher on your list than where mine was. So please tell me about it. It's maximalist, bombastic blockbuster filmmaking that I don't think I've ever seen before. Uh, like, Raja Muli, what he does with this is he takes a three-hour epic and makes it accessible, makes it populist, makes it emotional, makes it visceral. All of those things wrapped into one. Um, I've heard someone describe it as, like, a roller coaster inside a volcano, inside of a whirlpool, and they're not wrong. Like, it just goes. And somehow, the you know, I know the I know the Barter review changed both of our opinions on long runtime. I was sure this was going to drag at some point. It doesn't. It doesn't do any of that. It just keeps going, gives you new interesting things to lock into. The songs are really fun. Ram Charan and um, uh, Junior ATR are two of the most charismatic lead performances I've seen this year. They both deserve their flowers. Uh, again, the story is accessible, but also goes in really just emotional directions. You find yourself really cheering for both these characters, despite their very different goals and alliances. Um, the look of the film is tremendous. The style of the film just completely sinks in with you. It might be the most pure fun that I had with a movie this year, and I watched it at home. God help me, I wish I could find a theatrical release for it, but it's getting all the special events. If you can find one, seek it out. I've heard only great things about it. Um, but if you watch it at home, it's, you know, dubbed in Hindi. You won't miss too much. Um, I want to examine more Telugu cinema, either on this show or just in my life, and RRR it changed so much of how I can view movies like this. So yeah, go watch it. All it means, Brandon, is in 2023, you and I have to figure out how to create a physical space for us to enjoy these movies on a bigger screen than just a television yes. or living room set. You know, now's the time. It's the top three. We thought that it was going to be shorter because we have one less host this time around, but I think it just means that me and Brandon are going longer. <laughs> so well, they should say that. Hey, you know what? Future, future editor Brandon, you'll, you'll know what work is cut out for you. <laughs> Again, I'm so sorry. It's too late to apologize. All right. Number three, another horror flick, one that I didn't think, um, you know, I don't think any of y'all are going to expect this from me, but here it goes. It is from director Helena Rain, and that is 
Bodies, 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 baby. No way. Absolutely. Brandon, yes, all the way. Bodies, bodies, bodies was a film that I took as just like a big surprise for me. This was a film that I thought was going to be about, you know, partying, excess, just living um, these these teenagers who are just with a life of indulgence and what's going to happen when they discover a, a body that is murdered and questioning, you know, who done it. While it's very much that, it's also just a hilarious look at like how these this close group of friends are able to navigate one yeah trying to track down a killer amongst them but also just like the way that their relationships shift throughout the movie because of how their trust breaks and uh it never kind of repairs itself is it's hilarious it's 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 like it is dramatic but it's not a film that you watch with like a sense of dread or like sadness to you you're kind of watching it with excitement going like oh i wonder what's going to happen next because it's you're just feeding into the thrill of it all and i relate this film a lot to what its core um what its core game that they play is like bodies 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 is the title but it's also the game that they play which is like that elimination per round you've played mafia maybe you've played werewolf those have like uh, struck a chord for me in my high school days when I would play those all the time. So watching this film and seeing it like be played out in a movie is another reason why I think this is just tremendous. This is just a tremendous watch. Um, bodies, 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 you're up there. I do want to shout out one actor who really makes the film for myself as well as so many others who have watched this and enjoyed her performance. It is Rachel Sennett. Like if you know that much, Brandon didn't check this out because he's not a horror movie, but he watched Nope. I have concerns that, okay, moving on. <laughs> we can't take up more time <laughs> than we have. But number three, this is this is showtime, baby. Number three for me, bodies, bodies, bodies. Brandon, over to you. On to my number three. And unfortunately, this ends my theme of tying in thematically to your picks because this does not like bodies, bodies, bodies. Um, it's another just really, if you find a theme of my list, small, intimate, beautiful movies that examine human connections and blah, 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 blah. Number three is After Sun. It's freaking brilliant. Blah, 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 blah. After Sun, I I don't know too much about this, Brandon. I'm tuned in. Have you heard about this, though? The title, that is all. Okay, so After Sun is the first film from Charlotte Wells, who I believe is a playwright before this. Um, It stars Paul Mescal, who many of you know from Normal People, from Lost Daughter, stuff like that, uh, as well as Frankie Corio, who's a younger actress. Uh, it stars them as a father and daughter. The movie is framed around the daughter re-examining her past relationship with her father, both in terms of like memories and also just videotapes of the time that they spent on holiday together. Um, this film is beautiful. And I think specifically beautiful in the way that addresses the often messy relationships that can come about when parents try and look after their kids and don't look after themselves. And that's all I will say on that end. Um, Paul Mescal is getting a lot of buzz for best actor as he should. I, I did not know much about him before this. He's amazing in this. There's a tragicness to the character that I think he portrays so well, but you don't really know why. It's a film where you start off knowing that something went wrong. It's a bit of a mystery in that angle of how Charlotte Wells plays it off. But Frankie Corio as well is just a freaking fine. This is a year for like great young actors getting really great opportunities. And she plays off Paul so well. There's a karaoke scene that I mentioned the after Yang Chi scene, the karaoke scene might be one of like the most purely human moments I've seen in a film all of last year. Uh, but there's so many of those in this movie, like Charlotte Wells and her entire team just managed to make this movie so incredibly emotional in all the smallest ways, whether it's just getting a drink at a bar or, you know, even just sleeping, sleeping is emotional in this movie. There's like a moment where you see the room and it's completely dim and I won't spoil too much of it, but it's, 
it, it brings to mind like both of the characters' attitudes, their nonchalance with each other, but the deep like personal love they have. And I will simply say, everyone's talking about the last shot of the movie. It will wreck you. Uh, it is unfortunately only available to buy on VOD so far, which sucks. Why do VOD services do this? I wish they would just allow you to rent the damn movie. Um, but if you can get to it, I cannot recommend it to you highly enough. Brandon, I'm about to name my top two, but I actually kind of want to challenge you um, because, I mean, I'm assuming that you and I both have the same number one, like, duh, right? Like, I'm pretty sure we both have the same number one. But Plus. assuming that we do, can you guess my number two? Set it in your honorable mention. Oh, okay. Then I can go back and cheat. I um, think you did. Yeah. <laughs> did you get Sea Glass Onion yet? No. One more guess. One more guess. Is Banshees of Initiation your time? It is Banshees of okay. Initiation. We have our number two. Oh, sorry. That is my number two for our plot device. Top movies of 2022. Number two, Banshees of Initiation from Martin McDonough. I just want to say this is a movie that I hadn't expected to like as much as I did, which is always what ends up making me admire a movie even more. Um, it's performances between Farrell and uh, its additional cast members just slipped me because uh, more importantly, I want to say that this is a relate. This is a situation or a, a a difference in understanding for friendships that I think we never or rarely see explored this way, where the cent- the central conflict is between two friends who have now become like separated completely. They, there's there's been a rift between them, and there's no answers that are provided from either end. Um, at least, at least not early on. And I think that that is something that we expect to play out a whole lot more dramatically. And while we do get that by the end of the film, in the beginning, we're just, we're kind of left in the same state as Pharaoh, where we're just asking ourselves, like, why, 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 why? We are begging for an explanation as to, um, why a, somebody who has been so close to us has now abandoned that type of closeness. And, how that plays out is not something that I, I believe I've seen before. The type of landscape they were able to capture with their cinematography being on an, an island off the coast of Ireland is wonderful. Everything is beautiful, uh, including the, the the real life animals that they use. Um, another Jenny. I get, Jenny, another maybe not hell of a year, but we did see him a couple times. Uh, Barry Keoghan. It's either Keoghan or Keown. I've heard both names pronounced. Barry Keown, I'm going to run with that. We might be mispronouncing it, but yeah, another excellent year from him. Um, Banshees of Anishirin, does it have that kind of like, um, I think the film is called Banshees because it does kind of have like that dark element to it. And then the film goes on to explain for a different reason, but these films are supposed to be interpretive. And I think that what I pulled away from this film is just that it is a dark as hell tale, but has a softness to it with with Farrell's character. The script is amazing. I think if we were having discussions around like what would be our favorite script, this is damn near perfect in my opinion. And uh, though it is long, though it doesn't have as exciting of locations, it's a film that really gripped me and I and just stayed with me uh, throughout its entire runtime. So Banshees of Anishirin, thank you so much for being a very pleasant surprise this year. And I'm so happy I got out into theaters to watch this movie. I highly encourage you to do the same. You can stream that right now on HBO Max, Banshees of Anishirin, my number two. I have a best friend who adores it. You just made him very happy. Shout out to Zach if you're listening. Love you, dude. So my number two is actually one that you also put in your honorable mention. And I'm- Oh my gosh, let me ask. Yeah, okay. Okay, no, no, no. Well, you're going to give your little- is keep on going, but give me a chance to guess. I love this game. I was just going to give a bit of the verb of being like, 
it's a movie that, like yours, also ties into a very specific kind of human connection, but I think in a much warmer vein. And I'm frankly a little bit disappointed it's not higher on your list, considering the conversation we had around it. Hold on. And it's not my top, it's not on my top 10 already. It's an honorable mention. It's definitely an honorable mention. Dude, then um, I may be misremembering, but hold on. No, hold on. I'm, Cause I'm like scared. This, this now. Do is I get me two we're guesses? talking about. Oh, yes, you turning red. Nope. The number two. Oh, you have not said it yet. It is Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. It is Guillermo del Toro's just darn Pinocchio. Yes, dude. Well, I, I, hey, we both got it on our second chance. We're some good, hey, we're good partners here, Brandon. You know, we know each other's tastes. We don't know each other exactly, but we know each other enough to balance that, <laughs> yeah, and that's what right. matters. <laughs> um, Guillermo del Toro and Mark Gustafson, too, who I keep seeing his name omitted from this. He, he's the co-director of this movie. He deserves his flowers. Um, the two of them made magic with this movie. It's a movie that pertains to the idea of death, but also the idea of how death impacts the people we care about in ways that we can't comprehend. And I think that is perfectly encapsulated by the naivete of Pinocchio, who is voiced brilliantly by Gregory Mann, who I, I keep warming up. Uh, initially, I was a bit jaded that he was going a bit too kid-friendly with it, but I think he nails just the right balance the more that I listen to him. Explaining to kids that we are only here for so long and that we have to treat that life with respect, foreshadowing and making those connections where we can. And again, just the animation is broadly spectacular on so many levels. I cannot imagine the sleepless nights that it took to put this together because it is just so breathtaking and brilliant. David Bradley, Christoph Waltz, Kate Blanchett, who again, you know, in a year of tar, I'm not going to say Spazzatore is her best performance, but it's one of her most unique. Um, again, Alexander Desplat's music is only growing on me. Ciao, papa, mio, papa. It's been stuck in my head for the last week. Um, and again, it's a movie that takes the Pinocchio mythology and takes the structure of it, as I mentioned, but really does something incredibly new with it, whether it's the fascist setting, whether it's the story of Geppetto and his son, whether it's Pinocchio's journey, whether it's the side characters, it just takes the legacy of it and completely demolishes it and builds into something new and exciting. And I can't just say this enough, Robert Zemeckis should be tied to a chair and clockwork oranged by this movie for several times over before he realizes what he got wrong. This is how you do it and you all need to check it out. I cannot praise it to high heaven enough. Now, Brandon, now that we have lowered our pitchforks, are you ready to talk collectively? Duality. I don't know these words. Our number one film is pretty much, you knew it. You expected it. Three, two, one. Everything, everything everywhere, all, everywhere at all at once. Yes. From the Daniels. We got Daniel Scheinart and Daniel Kwan. Brandon, you and I are just going to talk about this together. We both have it as our number one. I believe for the probably 90% of the same reason, Michelle Yeoh, um, uh, we just got a win for performer. Yes, and it's it's tremendous. Uh, what's the first point you'd like to say for this being your number one, our plot device number one? Where do you even start with this movie? I think you start I, everywhere. I I think I literally introduced our initial review with that same line. Where do you start with this movie? And that might be the most beautiful thing about it, which is that there's so so much to explore with it, but it's all tightly contained and directed to hell and back, and the script is tight, and the performances are all on the same page. It's not just lightning in a bottle. It's like a freaking nebula in a bottle. Like th this shouldn't happen on this scale with this much of a mess, with this many things going on, with this many ideas and come out so poignant that we both wind up crying at rocks. Everything Everywhere All at Once is using filmmaking 
beyond the art of just like linear storytelling. Though it is, I think, a linear story, it's a better multiversal movie than the multiverse of madness, which didn't make either of our mentions this year. Like I said, mm-hmm. it was shifty for superhero movies this year. But this is a movie that just in every aspect of filmmaking they took and decided to ask the question of how can we stretch and bend this to just make our audiences question every scene of what's to come. And that's how I feel watching this movie. I never knew what to expect. Even after I think it wraps up, I ask myself like, what the hell did I just watch? I know how I feel, but I have no idea how they were able to bring me on this journey where I think family is at the core identity too, um, love. And I'm doing a rewatch uh, tomorrow with my sister who has never seen this movie. We're doing a um, projector watch in her backyard and it's going to be beautiful. Brandon, this is an example of how you use film as a storytelling art and beyond just like locking yourself into one location, locking yourself into one set of costumes that your characters can have. I love that it's wacky, but it's not, um, I almost said immature, but honestly, like it's a little immature too. It's <laughs> not, un- it's not ungrounded. It's not ungrounded. It has Jamie Lee freaking Jamie Lee Curtis as this hilarious accountant slash villain who chases, um, but, Brandon- who the, but who the movie never forgets has a character of her own. And like, I think that's one of the, there's so many biggest things about this movie, but like one of the key things about it is that it never loses track of every character is a person and that person has problems and, you know, negatives about them, but also is full of life and really positive things. I just went back literally last night and watched the full sequence of Joy and uh, Evelyn reconnecting at the very end of the movie. And that really brings to mind of just like, yeah, people can be a-holes sometimes and really not have the empathy that's needed. The important thing is to like move past that and know that those people are struggling too and try and connect with them on some level. It's a movie that doesn't have easy answers. And yet if you dig deep enough, the answers were there all along. In these past couple years, who hasn't had questions of whether they are where they, whether their life is where they wanted it to be or expected it to be, you know, since years back or grappling with um, the ideas of an imagined future only to be faced with reality and asking yourself, like, did I do something wrong? Those are questions are so real and how this film is able to give you perspectives on just reasoning behind us being exactly where we need to be at all time. And it's beautiful. I can get choked up if I want to get into that scene that you just described, but I won't because I don't cry on this podcast, um, at least not yet. But this is this is remarkable. And to see all the praise and the acclaim behind it is absolutely deserved. It is It is a film that is a mark of our time. And I can't wait just to introduce it maybe to like a next generation of film watchers who exist in my family or in, in my circles. It's going to be one of those movies that I ask, hey, have you ever seen this one? And if they say no, it's one we're going to throw on immediately. I will simply end off with this because we already went way too long with this episode and we've done 20 plus. Oh, absolutely, Brandon. Um, remember when I was saying foreshadowing out of Mitzi's go- about a Mitzi song? Um, her song was Sun Lux and David Byrne, which just recently randomly popped into my head when I was considering this movie for my number one. And I hadn't listened to the soundtrack since the movie. And I put on the song and I listened to it about 10 times. It just completely took me back into the sheer visceral emotion of the movie, that sense of sadness that lasts throughout all of the characters that are just trying to get out of the hole with. Even Jamie Lee Curtis, even Stephanie Hsu, like, there is a sense of sadness about this movie, and yet it's so overwhelmingly joyful and weird and poignant and actually has things to say in the midst of all of it. And I remember listening to that song and going, 
I don't think there is a song or movie that would drive me back into the pure emotional state of a movie as much as This Is a Life by Sunlocks, David Byrne, and uh, Mitski did. This is going to be a movie that impacts generations of filmmakers. And at least right now, I have a permagrant thinking about that. This is exciting, new, fresh, and amazing. And I guess with that being said, we should just recap our lists really quickly. For me, my number 10 through 1, uh, Puss in Boots, The Last Wish. Nope. After Yang, Tied with Drive My Car. Uh, Tar, Happening, The Fablemans, RRR, After Sun, Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, and Everything Everywhere All at Once. Noah, your top 10 for the people. My top 10, starting with 10, we're going to go ahead and do Prey, Fire Island, Barbarian, Marcel the Shell with Shoes On, RRR, Nope, The Batman, Bodies, 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 Banshees of Inisherin, and Everything Everywhere All at Once. And with that being said, we've done it. We finally left 2022 thank in the you. past. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Woohoo. Oh, my gosh. One thing I forgot to mention for TV yes. is White Lotus Season 2. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Ah, yes. Honorable mention for TV. But, Brandon, go ahead. Wrap up the episode. This is it for 2022. Thank you for my one last reminder of last year that I need to catch up on White Lotus because I'm stupid. Um, thank you guys so much for tuning in. We're not going to do the end tags. We're going way too long about this. But uh, Plot Devices Pod, Twitter and Instagram. Just follow the show. Uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, RSS feed. All links will be in the description below, along with myself and Noah's social media links and projects uh, in the description. Thank you guys so much for staying with us as long as you have. Cheers to 2023. Hoping to uh, many, many great news coming this year as well. From myself, from Noah Guzman, this has been Plot Devices Best of 2022. And Happy New Year to everyone. We'll see you in the multiverse.